Welcome to another episode of the Tom Shore Podcast. Happy Monday, everyone. Everyone had a great Easter weekend. Now, this week I'm headed to Idaho Falls, Idaho for Thursday and Friday. So, speaking of that, the upcoming events this spring, Standards Based Learning in Action, that two day training is happening in Idaho Falls, Idaho this Thursday and Friday, April 13th and 14th. Still time, still seats available, still time to register if you're in and around that area or want to join me in Idaho Falls for that training. The Assessment and Grading Conference, that'll be in Atlanta, Georgia, April 24th through 26th. I will be there on the 24th and 25th because on the 26th and 27th, I'll be in Salt Lake City. Uh, Utah for the Grading from the Inside Out two-day training happening there. End of May, May 24th, 26th. Uh, that's going to be the Assessment Center Institute. That's a big conference in Las Vegas, Nevada. I'll have links in the show notes for all of those events should they be of interest to you. Also, uh, you can find that on the uh, find all of those events on the Solution Tree website. I also want to remind you that I have a new book set for release this month. It's called Redefining Student Accountability, a Proactive Approach to Teaching Behavior Outside the Gradebook. It's all about how we teach responsibility and other student attributes without distorting their achievement grades or their achievement levels. You can pre-order the book now. Uh, It ships April 21st, and uh, I'll have a link in the show notes for that as well. I'm going to talk about the book a little bit in this episode. Okay, thanks for tuning in again this week. A big welcome to any new listeners joining in for the first time, and a big thank you to longtime listeners. I appreciate all of you. Uh, This week, my guest is Eric Scheniger. Eric is the co-author or author of seven books, including 2021's Disruptive Thinking, Preparing Learners for their future. So that is what we're going to focus on in our conversation today. And in Assessment Corner, as I just mentioned, I'm going to share a little bit more uh, about my new book, Redefining Student Accountability. Uh, This is going to be part one of two. I'll share uh, more next time, but uh, I'm going to start sharing a little bit about that book. So that is today's plan. Let's get to it. conversation with Eric Scheniger is coming up. But first, don't at me. But I want to open this week by reminding you that when you're making an argument in favor of something or when you're trying to convince others to change to a more favorable practice, I want to remind you that less is more. Now, one of my favorite podcasts that I listen to is called Hidden Brain, and it's hosted by Shankar Vedantam. And on a recent episode, he had a gentleman on named Nero Savanathan. And Savanathan is of the London Business School, and they were talking about how to make a convincing argument. Savanathan talked about the research, and what he said was that the research overwhelmingly supports this idea that less is more, that fewer, more powerful arguments in favor of something will be far more effective than an onslaught or a volume of points. The main finding of the research is that adding weak arguments to strong arguments actually dilutes the strong arguments. In other words, the extra stuff undermines the main stuff. He gave an example. He talked about some of the findings in the area of law. Specifically, he talked about the use of eyewitnesses in legal cases. And he gave an example uh, of how it kind of works in most legal cases. He said, imagine a lawyer has two eyewitnesses for, for a crime. One of the eyewitnesses is a very good eyewitness, right? They saw everything um, right down to the descriptions, the specific descriptions of the perpetrator, the, the whole thing. They have an absolute play-by-play of what happened. But then the other witness did see what happened, but they weren't entirely clear. They they don't have every detail. It's a little bit looser in terms of what they recall uh, from the incident. They know the suspect fits the description. Uh, They basically saw most of what happened, but they weren't as clear. Now, what most of us would probably think instinctively, and I would certainly include myself in this category before learning about these things, is that two eyewitnesses would be better than one. You have a very strong eyewitness 
and then you've got a pretty good witness, and it'd be very easy to think that this would make a stronger case than just having one witness. However, what the research shows, according to Savannathan, is that the weaker witness dilutes the overall strength of the case. The weaker witness dilutes the impact of the stronger witness. The reason that occurs, according to Savannathan, is that most people, when they receive information, do a kind of averaging when it comes to an argument that's being presented to them. And he gave the following example. So imagine you're making the argument about something and you're trying to convince people of something and you've got four main points you want to make. And and he just used numbers arbitrarily, but he said the first main points are very strong. The first two main points, right? So using these random numbers, think of the first two arguments in favor of something you're trying to convince people of. Think of them as a 90 out of 100. Each of those arguments is a very convincing argument. However, the third and the fourth main points are weaker. So imagine they rate at, say, a 60 out of 100. So now many of us would be inclined to think that those third and fourth main points sort of pile on the first two points and simply add strength to the argument. But what the research actually shows is that the receivers of the information don't actually do addition. Each point doesn't add to the argument. What the receivers actually do, according to the research, is they engage in a kind of averaging. So when you have the first two points being a 90 out of 100, and the third and fourth points being a 60 out of 100, the argument actually comes in at a 75 out of 100. So in the case of these four main points, the person presenting the idea or the argument would have actually been more influential had they simply presented the first two points rather than all four because the first two points come in at a strength of 90 out of 100. That's a lot of numbers, but, but the idea being that receivers of information tend to do a kind of averaging. So what Savannathan was basically saying was a reiteration of that expression that we all know, that you're only as strong as your weakest link. So when making an argument that when we're trying to convince people, your argument will only be as strong as your weakest point. Savannathan gave another example about side effects for medication. Now, most of us have heard either on television or on a commercial or or through our own doctor about the side effects of some medication that we've at some point had to take. And he gave the example of a medication that had side effects that went from heart attacks and strokes all the way down to itchy feet. Now, typically, the more side effects that were listed, the less, the less impactful each one was. In experiments, he talked about this idea that presenting fewer side effects or listing all the side effects but using a different color to distinguish the major side effects from the minor side effects actually made a significant difference in terms of their impact. Now, I've talked a lot about Adam Grant as well. Adam Grant also writes about this in the book, Think Again. And of course, I talk a lot about it because I just finished reading the book and I've mentioned it a few times on the podcast. But Grant wrote on page uh, 111 in Think Again, quote, it's when audiences are skeptical of our view or have a stake in the issue and tend to be stubborn that piling on justifications is most likely to backfire. If they're resistant to rethinking, more reasons simply give them more ammunition to shoot our views down, end quote. So obviously in so much of the work we do, especially in the area of assessment and grading, uh, that those reform efforts are definitely viewed uh, through a skeptical lens. Uh, There's people who have a stake in the issue about their current practices, and there are people who can tend to be stubborn. So despite our instincts, the consensus seems to be that less is more, that fewer, stronger points in favor of something will be more convincing than a volume of points. Savannathan says that receivers of the information will suffer from volume information overload, right? When you make too many points, it's just an onslaught of information. 
So if you are currently in a position where you're trying to convince others of something, uh, whether that be in the area of grading reform, shifting assessment practices in your school or your district, trying to influence the community that our schools need to be more culturally responsive or that we need to pay more attention to how students develop their SEL competencies or how we can become more trauma-informed, whatever, whatever you're trying to argue in favor of, the advice seems to be to figure out what your strongest arguments are and just use those and resist the temptation to provide a laundry list of reasons why the change is important. And when you think about it, it, it really does make sense because if I'm trying to resist a change effort, I don't really attack your strongest arguments. What I do is I begin to pick apart your weakest ones. So if you present me with a list of 10 reasons in order of, of strength, why a change is important, I don't start trying to pick apart main idea, main point number one. I start picking apart main point number 10, and then I pick apart number nine, and then number eight, and so on. You give me a list of 10 reasons why a change is important, but I can pick apart the bottom half. So legitimately, I call into question five of your 10 points, for example. Now all of a sudden, your argument looks a lot weaker. So remember, in any change effort, less is more, fewer, more convincing points will be more effective in the long run than information overload. Joining me today for the interview is Eric Scheniger. Eric works with schools throughout the world, helping educators meet and exceed their potential to improve outcomes for learners. Prior to this, he was a teacher and the award-winning principal of New Milford High School. Under his leadership, his school became a globally recognized model for innovative practices. Eric oversaw the successful implementation of several sustainable change initiatives that radically transformed the learning culture at his school while increasing achievement. Eric is the author or co-author of seven books, including 2021's Disruptive Thinking, Preparing Learners for Their Future. And that is going to be the focus of our conversation today. So Eric, I want to welcome you to the podcast. Great to be here, Tom. And I'm looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, looking forward to it as well. You're someone I've wanted to have on the podcast for a while and finally got around to uh, inviting you. It was great to meet you. I think it was last spring or summer. We were at the same conference summer, maybe in July in Utah. And, uh, and we had a, you know, really enjoyed meeting you there. And I've been a follower of your work for a while. And certainly you've been active on social media. So really looking forward to this opportunity to dig a little bit deeper uh, into the content. So before we dig deeper, though, um, I just want to give, you know, I gave some highlights during the introduction, but I want to give you the opportunity to kind of give us a little more detail Tell us about the professional journey. Where did your education career begin? Take us through New Milford and, and how you ended up where you are today. Yeah, I think my professional journey can be defined by numerous mishaps and aha moments. <laughs> and, you know, the first aha moment is I went to school to be a marine biologist. And then I went to go get a master's in fisheries biology. And then I had an aha moment when I was teaching uh, graduate biology classes, uh, biology labs, undergrad, that I was meant to be a teacher. And that was kind of an aha moment for me. And, you know, then I came back, ironically taught marine biology as my teaching job and always had the, you know, the itch to eventually do more, uh, like my father, who was an elementary principal at the same school for over 30 years. Mm. That led me to New Milford uh, in New Jersey, uh, where I served in various uh, positions that quickly led to the principalship. 
in terms of my work there, early on, it was the, the missteps that really defined my career. It really was, you know, I led uh, the way that I was led. And it really was about control, compliance, you know, making sure that our kids behaved accordingly, following the bells, all that stuff. And, you know, it really led to, in my mind, which was my fault, a stagnant environment. I didn't know that until after chasing a student through my building in 2009 because he broke our cell phone policy. He then proceeded to tell me school was like a jail. And I just saw all these missteps where I thought I was doing what was best for kids. But then the aha moment materialized where, you know what, I have to rethink I have to learn how to unlearn and relearn. I need to be a better principal for my students, a better principal for my staff. And it was getting on Twitter was all right at that same time and opened my eyes and mind to what could be. From there, we worked. And, you know, when people hear my bio, listen, we became nationally, globally recognized because of what my teachers did. And I think that's the essence of leadership. Leadership isn't telling people what to do. It's taking them where they need to be. Mm -hmm. And from 2009 to 2014, we did a whole bunch of things that at the time other schools were not doing at scale. We were improving achievement in the process. And that kind of led to what I do now where I didn't go into consulting. That was not my decision. I was asked after organizations visited my school. So Mm -hmm. now I write books, travel the world, and just try (laughs) to – help others not do what I did, but ask the right questions, leverage research, and utilize evidence to move practice forward in a way that showcases value. Yeah, I love that. I love the idea of taking them where they need to be and being, you know, leadership is about guidance, direction, inspiration, you know, giving them opportunities to reveal their potential and, and then and then, you know, writing the ship in a way that everybody's, you know, moving in the same direction. I, I just love that approach and love that thought. It's interesting as I think about my own administrative career, about how early on in my career, I was very similar in terms of like control. And I think part of it was trying, trying to prove my worth and prove my value. But that control idea, that definitiveness, that being very hard and very uh, tough. And, and yet as time went on, I realized that you could be tough without being punitive you could you could you could have expectations and inspire kids to be to be more of their potential than than that toughness and that evolution i also remember that those early days of twitter uh you know and i think you were you know someone that was very early on kind of blowing up on twitter and and this idea of what is twitter and what does it mean to be an educator on twitter and it's kind of gone through several iterations and evolutions for sure but i still have a little bit of nostalgia for the old days where it was just 140 characters you kind of got to know people in a way that you'd never met before. So uh, you, you took me down a little bit of memory lane there for sure. Yeah. Now, yeah. So um, let's let's now pivot because I want to spend the bulk of our time talking about disruptive thinking because I think it's such a, a relevant text. 2021, you released Disruptive Thinking, Preparing Learners for Their Future. So I want to start with that subtitle and let's start with the big picture here. When you think about our students' future, what exactly do you envision, Eric? What are you thinking about? What, what do you think we are preparing them for as they sort of head to their futures? Yeah, I I think to sum it up real concisely is don't prepare students for something. Prepare them for anything. Here's Mm -hmm. what the pandemic has taught us. Here's what ChatGBT has taught us is we do not have a crystal ball. We have no idea 
what disruptive forces are going to be at play that are going to impact the lives, both professional and personal, of our learners. So we want them to not just be skilled, and that's a word that I've shied away from. We want them to be competent. And competencies can happen being supported both with and without technology. But as I look to kind of encapsulate and, and kind of define, and, and I think we got to be wary with how we define things, because I think mm-hmm. with a lot of concepts, it's what does it mean to you as a teacher, as an administrator, as a consultant? But mm-hmm. disruptive thinking is providing students with the ability to replace conventional ideas with innovative solutions to authentic problems. Mm-hmm. You look at performance tasks. You look at, you know, success criteria in a rubric. You look at kids creating something that has meaning where they're constructing new knowledge and they're demonstrating understanding. So, you know, it it kind of veers away from all the the buzzwords and Mm -hmm. really because we saw COVID-19 was probably the most uh, – the event that we were not prepared for. And that's a lesson that we can learn and instill in the classroom, in our school culture, mm-hmm. and in turn, how we help kids learn in ways that are meaningful and valuable to them. Yeah, I, I could not agree with you more. Uh, my colleagues and I wrote a book in 2019 called Growing Tomorrow Citizens in Today's Classroom, all about sort of assessing 21st century skills. And it is our contention that aligns perfectly with yours, which is we don't know what the future is going to look like. The, the importance of the competencies for us, we use the word adaptability. The competencies make us highly adaptable as the pace of change, you know, is is outpacing human adaptability. We need these competencies, whether it's critical thinking, innovation, even collaboration, communication, the four C's and beyond. We need those to be highly adaptable individuals. So I love the idea that we don't have a crystal ball. We don't know what the future holds tomorrow, next year. No one saw chat GPT coming a year and a half ago or two. Well, no one. I mean, I shouldn't say no one, but you understand what I'm saying. Yes. So the idea that we just don't have that crystal ball, I love that that idea of just focusing on what allows them that maximal flexibility or that adaptability. I think that's aligned with that as well. I love that. Um, and the big thing with competencies is yeah. competencies take into account skills, Right. Knowledge, content, Mm -hmm. but also behavior, attitude, Mm -hmm. mindset. So it's it's we have to have a a more broad view of what Mm -hmm. our learners need in order Mm -hmm. to help them be successful. You know? Yeah, for sure. We don't want to fall in that trap where we teach the way we were taught because it might have worked for us, but that Mm -hmm. doesn't mean it's gonna serve our learners well. That's true. And and you're making me think about something like critical thinking and the, the idea that we have to push past the skill, the idea that I don't just want kids to do critical thinking. I want them to become critical thinkers as a default disposition. That's who I am. It's not what I do. It's a, it's a, it's a behavioral shift that I think critically in all situations. The example I sometimes use is you know, if your student is, if, if, if your child was lost at the mall, would they be able to think critically in that situation as opposed to just doing critical thinking in science? So taking a more expansive view of the competencies, I love that approach, that idea of, of uh, the behavioral influence. I feel like you and I are very aligned in our thinking already. So I, I feel like this can be a great conversation <laughs> as we think about going forward. Um, so we think about the new normal and I, I, that phrase is used. And I know in some respects we've come out of the pandemic and saying, we don't want to go back to normal. But on the other hand, we think about 
new normals and what normal means. And there's lots of context for that. But as we forge ahead with this new normal, as you write, you talk about that there's still a place for content. And I, and I, I think I really appreciate this as well. I hear so many people today talking about this in a kind of, um, you know, reductive way where it's not about the content, it's about the 21st century competencies. And I kind of cringe every time I hear people say that. I, I think about the fact that there's a connection there. So from your perspective, what role does content play and still play in preparing students for that ever-evolving future? Oh, you, you, you kind of just struck a nerve with me, Tom, because <laughs> it's not just content. Uh, when the book was being reviewed, I got pushed back for talking about direct instruction. Oh, and, and here's the thing. When we look at everything that teachers are expected to do, we have to understand that there's value in all the many facets, but we have to take that critical lens to, you know, how are we getting, are we just having kids be passive consumers of content right. or are we exposing them to different forms of content? Are we having them critically analyze it? Are we having them construct new knowledge? And I think one aspect is, yes, there's all that we can access content all of us, you know, we can ask Siri, we can ask Alexa, we can have all these essays written by ChatGPT, but does that mean it's actually accurate? And how does that content become a foundation for, you know, we go back to whether, you know, we refer to a DOK, Bloom's levels of thinking, the students need that foundational content in order to demonstrate understanding, to apply analyze, evaluate, create. Now, as kids get older, I think we have to look at how we are spending maybe less time presenting the content and maybe looking at how we are identifying those learners who might need more support and really go in with them in smaller groups to get them to focus on not, I, 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 mastering is a tough word because I don't know if we master anything, but yeah. getting kids to demonstrate that understanding while letting other kids, if they already have a, a central understanding, move at their own pace. But when I come back to content and we, we look at connecting it to disruptive thinking with that foundation in place, we want our learners to be you know, creative scholars, reflective learners, collaborative workers, you know, active engagers, self-directed managers autonomous inquirers. And it's hard to do that if A, they don't have that content foundation and B, if they're not able to effectively evaluate all of these sources of content, in many cases, some might be inadequate. Right. That's the critical thinking skill of the 21st century is that there's no shortage of information, but can I with credibility and with thoughtfulness, look at which sources are credible, which ones are are the fake news, if you will. You're making me think of two things. Um, one would be, you know, Howard Gardner's Five Minds of the Future and how we all need, in order to be successful in the future, we need a disciplined mind. That is, we have to have a discipline. We need to have expertise in a particular area to think creatively, to think expansively. You know, the disciplined mind and the creating mind kind of go together. And it also makes me think about this idea that if you're going to think critically, you have to think about something. You need content in order to provide the substance of your critical thinking. Because if you just said to a group of teachers, hey, uh, 
get together and I want you to get innovative, they would, the first question is innovative about what? What are we getting innovative about? What are we thinking about? So the idea that content, I'm, I'm curious though, that pushback you got about direct instruction, what specifically was happening there? What, what was some of that pushback? What, what were people saying? What were reviewers saying? That it just doesn't really align with an innovative thought process, preparing students for this world. Um, it really was just a pushback on the strategy. Here's the thing. You know, people get so caught up in what their view of education should be. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where we get in trouble, whether it's those that are resistant to change or those who are changing. And, and, you know, nothing is black and white in education. There is so much gray. I tend to look at it. You find the value in the different strategies. And when it comes to direct instruction, okay, we want to keep it brief. You know, students, when you're going through solving algebraic expressions, you know, quadratic formulas, kids need that content. They need to see the modeling. And, you know, modeling is one of the most effective strategies to help kids to start to retain and then apply. So, but it's just interesting in, in you know, yeah. social media, it, it's, it's been great for me, but it also becomes frustrating because people want to challenge every little thing instead of trying to teaching is part art and part science Mm -hmm. so is leadership but let's find a dynamic mixture which is going to be different for every teacher every classroom school and district let's find a dynamic mixture of the strategies that work best to help kids learn yeah you 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 think we'd learn the lesson by now of stop swinging the pendulum from one side to the other and think of it more as an expansion I'm with you. There is a place for direct instruction, especially early in a unit. One of the reasons inquiry-based learning gets mixed reviews in academia is because sometimes it's simply introduced too soon. I don't know what I'm curious about if I don't have a foundation of knowledge to begin with. But I, I know what you mean about social media. This is my love-hate relationship with Twitter now, which is, you know, people are like, where's the research and where's this? It's like, it's Twitter. I've got 280 characters and, you know, you're, you're expecting a dissertation because you disagree with a point or you're, you're fine-tooth combing every, every every word that I use. And I know that sometimes that gets frustrating uh, for you. It does for me as well, which is you can't, you can't explain things in that. And people are sometimes just looking for the, uh, the one little thing they can hang on and and push back on. And I just don't think that's helpful or productive in that setting. And Tom, let me give you a really quick soundbite on that. Because that is pushback I've gotten during keynotes. Even though people have not said it nicely, it's been more Mm -hmm. criticism than feedback. I've taken mm-hmm. it to heart. So anytime I mention research during my keynote, there is a yeah. QR code on that slide that if people mm-hmm. choose to go and scan that code, it will take them to the peer-reviewed research that supports every single concept and strategy I'm talking about. Perfect. That's a great, great way to do that. I, I might pick up on that. I, I think that's a really great, smart strategy to have that QR code on that slide and say, if you want more information about what I'm saying, it's right here for you. There so you go. linking, even if it was a single study that you're quoting on a slide, having that QR code, that's, that's great, Eric. I, I really like that strategy. So I will definitely uh, think yeah. about using that. Yeah. All right. So I've learned something. We're on, we're aligned in our thinking. We're, we're, uh, we're, we got three dimensions happening here uh, in our conversation. You also write about personalized learning in the book. And uh, I want to ask you a two-part question here. Uh, 
One would be, you know, do you see a difference? Because I hear this term a lot and the dichotomy between individualized learning and personalized learning. I don't know if you hear that as much as I do, but I have heard that. So I'm wondering if you see a difference between those two. And the other question I want to ask as a follow-up to that is, in order to, because you use the term personalized learning, what are the shifts that are necessary to make learning personal? Yeah, you know, and I think about personalization versus individualized. And many times individualization doesn't carry that personal meaning, that authenticity, the relevance. You know, when we think about the root word, personal. And by the way, you don't need technology to personalize. Um, but personal is, again, coming back to those competencies, that, that collaboration, discourse, self-regulation, inherent meaning. Uh, if you are already competent, being able to move and be challenged. But if you are struggling, time is being used in a way to support you, to help you reach your goals. You know, I define personalization as all learners getting what they need, when and where they need it to succeed, as opposed to what we traditionally see is all kids doing the same thing at the same time, the same way. Now, this doesn't mean you have 30 different activities for learners. It's about understanding that you're going to set the stage with really good tier one instruction, which doesn't go away. Tier one then sets up all, you know, a variety of different strategies, you know, that leverage student agency, voice, where all kids get to participate, choice, choice could be choosing the right tool for the right task, uh, choice could be choosing how to show that they understand, instead of every kid doing the Google, same Google slide, give them options or let them come up with their own, um, working at their own pace within reason. You know, when we think about learning, learning is not a sprint and kids learn differently. They just do. So giving kids some of that time that they need to demonstrate mastery or get that more support from their teacher, uh, letting them follow their own path. And path is no different than, you know, going back to differentiate, differentiation. The challenge with differentiation, we talk so much about differentiated instruction. Instruction is what the adult does. Learning is what the kids do. And that's another big distinction between differentiated instruction and personalized learning. Mm -hmm. uh, and also looking at place. You know, place now can be virtual. We get so hung up on flexible seating as the place, but it could be outside. It could be in the hallway. It could be virtual. Mm -hmm. So some of the most practical, and I believe in practicality. So strategies that I work with teachers and administrators on is setting up station rotation, mm -hmm. K-12, where data is used to group, regroup, but most importantly, provide targeted instruction based upon where the kids are and what they need. Mm -hmm. Looking at choice activities, such as must-do, may-do, may-do, built-in extension activities, built-in challenge for those kids that already get it. Uh, mm -hmm. Looking at choice boards, where you can scaffold the different tasks, where kids aren't doing all the activities, they're choosing a set amount. And a choice board can be three options. It doesn't have to be nine. Uh, mm -hmm. Looking at playlists, where kids are given a series of scaffolded tasks, where they are choosing the order that they're going to do them. Mm -hmm. But behind the choice activities and the playlists, the teacher is using data to pull students for one-on-one -on -one intensive support. What did I just describe? 
tier three RTI, rotational yeah. models, tier two. Now, for the secondary level, you could use the flipped approach where students are watching short videos of the content, but here's the beauty of it. They can watch it as many times as they need to in order to mm-hmm. grasp it. And then in school, in class, is where they're going to spend all this time. So rotational models, choice activities, playlists, flipped classroom, keep it simple. But again, it's not about doing those strategies all the time. It's mm-hmm. about picking the right moment. Yeah, I think that that adaptability there, the idea of picking the right strategy at the right time reminds me of coaching where, you know, not trying to do every drill or every activity that you can do to develop an athlete, but picking the right, what, what do we need in this moment and how do we personalize that for the learner? It reminds exactly. me of you know, a lot of things we do in coaching for sure. You mentioned this already, but I want to come back to it and, and have you drill down a bit more on the environment. Of course, it is what kids do, but we also know it's about the environment within which they are doing it the, and, and the expansive nature of the environments now in 2023. So what for you are environments that are most conducive to cultivating thinking in the classroom or for our learners? Yeah, you know, as humans, we love our shiny things. Just look at how we <laughs> do our technology purchases. Yeah, but the thing true. is, we also, when it comes to classroom design, we love the, you know, what looks great on print Pinterest, you know, because mm-hmm. it's pretty on Pinterest. Does it mean it's actually going to improve learning? You have mm-hmm. to have those pedagogical shifts. And when you look at the body of research out there, Research has found everything from furniture, layout, temperature, acoustics, lighting, all can significantly impact the willingness of students to learn. That's a key. Nobody wants to learn in a room that's freezing cold or that's really, really hot. Flexible seating can have such immense value when it's used in conjunction with personalized strategies. My go-to is blended learning. You know, mm-hmm. blended instruction is what the teacher does with tech. Blended learning is where kids control some aspect of path, pace, and place where they're comfortable. So being able to have comfort, work at their own pace, follow their own path. And path could be on an adaptive learning tool. I don't have any issue with adaptive learning tools. I have an issue if I walk into a classroom or a school and all the kids are on the same tool at the same time. There's no discourse there's no conversation and there's no evidence of how that data is going to be used to meet mm-hmm. their needs. So, you know, I, I think we got to always look at those pedagogical shifts that we want to occur. Uh, you know, I was fortunate to work at Wells Elementary, which is in my home district of SciFair ISD in Texas. And my daughter was a fifth grader at this school. It's some of the best blended pedagogy you'll see. But when mm-hmm. I show people pictures of the school, they gravitate towards the the furniture and the flexible seating. And when I see them excited, then I show them the quantitative and qualitative evidence of what that school has been able to accomplish at scale, bringing all those pieces together. Yeah, I love that. Um, yeah, I think we sometimes underestimate the, um, the impact that the environment has and what what that is conducive to or, or how it restricts us or how it opens things up for us to create different opportunities for learners. So Eric, last one, as we finish up, um, obviously my 
uh, primary area of focus is assessment, of course. And uh, so, of course, I have to ask you about assessment as we disrupt thinking and disrupt learning and, and get ourselves into this 21st century mindset. From your perspective, um, how does assessment need to evolve and keep pace with the necessary changes within the classroom? So if we're if we're implementing these innovative strategies and we're starting to disrupt we're, we're getting into this disruptive thinking about what classroom instruction can look like, what learning looks like. From your perspective, what what needs to happen with assessment in order to keep pace with that change? Yeah, and feel free to step in at any time <laughs> because I'm going to ramble on a whole different things. You know, assessment has to be ongoing. Yeah. And it doesn't have, you know, we put so much stake in summative, but all those formative checks, you know, I'm a firm believer that it's very difficult to determine whether a lesson was effective if we're not doing some type of closure. Formative assessment, going back to personalization. I wanna see every kid being able to respond on a whiteboard, a dry erase desk, or using technology so the teacher can get a good sense, where did I meet that learning target? And do I need to do a reteach? I also think that Having, you know, when we look at all those different formative ways, the checks for understanding, reviewing prior learning, using that formative data to inform what we should do and pivot if we need to. I think as we look at being able to curate reliable data, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of routine benchmarking, benchmarking that, you know, if you're a large district or school where teachers can look at the data and really compare the strategies that are closing those learning gaps that are working. Um, and that's another great, uh, that my district where I live, SciFair, they are amazing at benchmarking and using data at scale. Uh, I also believe in creating the common form of assessments as an integral part of PLCs, because again, you've got to look, there's no one right way to assess, but again, going back to dynamic and your word adaptable, I think we have to do that. And I think also digital tools provide us that opportunity to assess where kids are at. You know, I see a lot of adaptive tools out there. I'm not going to name them all, but we can use that then to in turn give kids valuable feedback, validation, but also here are the things that you need to work on. So I think that assessment now, we have so much information and a lot of that is because of technology. Yeah. But how do we use that to provide our learners timely, practical, specific feedback to help them become competent, but also be prepared for whatever summatives that they're going to take? So yeah. that's my rambling answer. <laughs> no. Um Preaching to the choir, uh, Eric, uh, I definitely am aligned in that thinking because I think I, I, a couple of things as you were responding. One is assessment is necessary to, if you think on the larger scale, if we're going to as schools assert that we are preparing kids for their future, that we are developing uh, creative, innovative, critical thinkers for the 21st century, we need to be able to substantiate those claims and be able to have some substance to point to. Because if a parent looks at us and our family says, hey, how's my daughter doing with that? And say, well, we don't really assess that. It just sounds very hollow to me that you just, you have to be able to substantiate those claims. And on a micro level, thinking about that feedback, that regardless of what you're learning, whether it's content or we're evolving into competencies or skills or cross-curricular, um, you know, 
demonstrations or whatever, there's still those formative moments where feedback is necessary from the teacher, both about what's strong and what needs strengthening. So I'm with you. You know, assessment is one of those things that's that's timeless. Regardless of what the standards are, the learning is, the goals are, assessment is always going to be a part of that. And those formative moments and those checks for understanding are where the real power in assessment lies. So, um, and and probably going to a place where we can have students self-assessing and peer assessing. You just read my mind. That's what yeah. I would stop you and say. Absolutely. That power Go ahead. component is yours. to self-assess. You know, I'm yeah. very honored to work with uh, Quest Academy Junior High uh, mm. in Utah. They yeah. have they unpack every standard into rubric learning targets for everything. Yeah. The kids yeah. are self-assessing. They're advocating yeah. for what they need. They are yeah. getting either one-on-one or small group support. They're yeah. integrating voice and choice. But I will also come out and say that there are things that we have to stop assessing. You know, we mm-hmm. should not, in my opinion, and the research backs it up, we should not assess homework because of equity oh, yeah. gaps. I mean, that's one thing that we have to, to, to move away from. So everything, and that's what I get with personalization. They're like, Eric, I don't have the time to, to assess everything. You don't have, you want to teach the kids self-regulation. You want to teach them self-management, you know, have a three question form of assessment at at the end Mm -hmm. and use that as a means to give feedback. So, you know, I, I think having aligning a grade and points to everything and when yeah. we think about assessment, I see a what some people think are rubrics are scoring guides. Right. You have to move away from five points for your name, 10 mm-hmm. points for having a title, um, mm-hmm. 20 points for having 20 PowerPoint slides. <laughs> because those points don't tell kids anything right. about what they actually have learned or what yeah. they need to do. So sorry, I'm going to get off my soapbox. No, you're you're talking to the right person here because I mean, you're right. Scoring guides, rubrics describe gradations of quality. They aren't about points and they aren't about, you know, uh, compliance issues. And they, those, those things belong in checklists. Do you have your name on your paper? Do you have your paragraphs indented? Those are all compliance issues that you could use in a checklist, but that's not assessment. That's not quality. Um, I mean, my, my, you know, I just keep nodding along as you're, you're talking here because I agree with you. The idea of uh, assessing homework for, for its, for its. Oh, participation. Don't even get me started. Yeah. 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 That's right. Yeah. No, there's, there's just so many ways that we need to, to evolve in our, in our practices and, and and we're getting there. I'd say that things are better than they were 20 years ago, but we still have a ways to go in that, you know, for me, the, the whole idea, when I work with schools and teachers, I say, you know, your development of your assessment literacy or you developing an expertise in assessment is not about you. It's about you becoming an expert so you can teach the students how to do this on their own behalf. Because I think one of the most important 21st century competencies is the self-regulation piece. Mm-hmm. It's the idea yeah. of being self-regulatory about self, the self-regulation of learning, and, and students being able to drive that learning. So our expertise needs to not be the end goal. It's the penultimate goal. Yeah. The real goal is students being able to do this on their own behalf. So I, I appreciate you jumping in on that for sure. Um, look, I, mean, I think we could talk about this for a, a lot longer, but uh, to our time is limited. I've got two questions, Eric, as we finish up. These are questions I ask everyone who comes on the podcast. It's been a great conversation and certainly just nodding my head as I go along. So I, I feel like uh, my prediction earlier in the conversation was true. We're very aligned in our thinking about many things, including assessment. But two questions left to finish up. The first one, a little more substantive, um, and you can take this in any direction you want to go to. Uh, but but the question is simply this. Educationally speaking, what keeps you up at night? Everybody says they want feedback. But are those people that are asking for feedback 
truly open to it. <laughs> good that question. is one of the things that keeps me up. And yeah. I will be very vulnerable. And I, and I think that you can't change. It's very difficult to change if you're not honest and if you're not vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Um, I have struggled in that. Ca- I used to struggle with that where mm-hmm. I wasn't really open to feedback. And that's something that mm-hmm. I've worked really, really hard. And it's not about agree or disagree. I will keep asking questions mm-hmm. uh, when feedback is provided. You know, Feedback should be a dialogue, not a mm-hmm. monologue. You know, it's a collaborative conversation. So I I think when we look at progress and there's so many pressures and stresses and challenges on schools, but if we can create vibrant cultures of feedback that help people grow, align to their goals and needs, I think that could, could very well be one of the keys to ensure uh, not just scalable practices, but success in this disruptive world. Yeah, it's an interesting perspective for sure, because you're right that, uh, you know, we're all open to feedback as long as feedback is is validating mm-hmm. and positive and tells me I'm doing the right things. Uh, when the feedback is a little tougher to swallow, uh, we sometimes bristle at that feedback. So are people truly open to the feedback they say they're open to? That's a very good question. Okay, let's, let's end on a lighter note. As listeners know by now, uh, I love food. And you live in Cypress, Texas. So I want to know from you, Eric, if I'm ever in Cypress, Texas, where should I eat? Where do I have to eat? Uh, so, where's the best place to eat in Cypress, Texas? So first off, I'm going to make a plug for the Bayou City. Um, okay. Cypress is right outside Houston. And okay. Houston is probably one of the most underrated food cities in the country. Oh, amazing really? restaurants. Now, okay. Cypress is about 30, 35 miles northwest. So there are okay. two. Texas okay. is known for barbecue. And Texas barbecue, the main meat is brisket. So mm-hmm. when you're in Texas, you got to get brisket. That's what I've learned as a Northeastern yeah. transplant. And it's my Killin- favorite. Killens <laughs> used to be down in Pearland, south of the city. We now have Killens in Cyprus. So great, great spot for barbecue. Excellent. But also one of my favorites, I'm a big farm to table guy. And in our community, we have a restaurant called Local Table that is farm to table. They are just so awesome to the community, but their food in particular, their brunch is amazing. And I could drive my golf cart there. So I kind of like <laughs> Fantastic choices. Um, I've eaten at a Killens in Pasadena, Texas. Uh, they have a Killens down there as well. I think that's where I ate. That sounds very familiar. Uh, So great recommendations. And you're, again, you're finishing in alignment with me because uh, brisket is my absolute favorite when it comes to to barbecue. Uh, Listeners, you can and should, and most of you probably already do follow Eric on social media. The handle on Twitter is at underscore uh, E, or sorry, at E underscore Scheninger. And on Instagram, it's at E Scheninger, no underscore, uh, just all lowercase E Scheninger there. Eric is on Facebook and LinkedIn. We'll have links in the show notes for all of those uh, social media handles, as well as you can check out Eric's website. That's www.ericscheninger.com and ericscheningerblogspot.com is where Eric blogs as well. So uh, great conversation, Eric. Super interesting. Uh, Love the perspective that the book brings to the conversation. Thanks for doing this, man. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Tom. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcasts. Now let's get back to the episode. In Assessment Corner this week, 
I want to share with you a little bit more detail about my new book that will be available April 21st. It's called, as I mentioned in the opener, uh, Redefining Student Accountability, A Proactive Approach to Teaching Behavior Outside the Gradebook. Now, some of you might think to yourself, what does a book about behavior have to do with assessment? But I think most of you recognize that one of the biggest advocacies in grading reform is the separation of achievement from behavioral attributes. Most who talk about grading reform will advocate for a separation between achievement and behavior, but fewer will talk about what actually to do on the behavioral side of the ledger. One of the implementation errors that I notice in some schools is that there is this separation between achievement and behavior, but the schools allow, whether it's intentional or inadvertently, they allow the important behavioral characteristics like responsibility to kind of fall by the wayside. It's very important that in the separation between achievement and behavior, that the important behavioral attributes and those characteristics that we're trying to develop in our students, that they get the attention that they deserve. I mean, never forget, and, and longtime listeners, you've heard me say this many, many times over the last few years with the podcast, but never forget that what adults give their attention to is what children and teenagers will come to believe is important. And one of the reasons that students and families don't take these behavioral attributes seriously, it's not the only reason, but one of the reasons they don't take the behavioral attributes seriously when they're separated from achievement is that a lot of the educators don't take them seriously in so much as we don't give them the kind of attention they deserve. And we can't claim on the one hand that we're teaching more than the academic standards, but then on the other hand, leave the teaching of those important characteristics and attributes to a kind of informal and maybe even haphazard random kind of process, uh, depending upon certain situations as they emerge. For example, we can't claim to be teaching responsibility if we have to wait until a student has been irresponsible to teach that, that characteristic or that attribute. Redefining student accountability was a chapter in the book Grading from the Inside Out, which, which was published in 2016. Now, since then, and, and honestly, even before the book was published, the concept of student accountability was always an important topic of conversation, especially at the secondary level. And I would even argue that it's probably the most important issue that has to be addressed in grading reform as we seek to create more accurate and more detailed and more transparent grading and reporting systems. So my motivation for writing the book was to answer the question of what do we do instead, Tom? So if we're not lowering grades for less than favorable student characteristics like handing in something late, then what do we do? And my frustration with people like me who present on grading is that they often don't have an answer for that question. What do we do instead? Now, the easiest part of this equation is to tell people what to stop doing, like no zeros, no penalties, none of that. The harder part is to answer the question, what do we do instead? Okay, now I'm not thinking of anybody in particular. Okay, so before you start speculating, I'm not, there's no one in, I'm thinking of specifically, so please don't think I'm like subtweeting someone or thinking of a particular presenter or a consultant who talks about grading. I am 100% not. This is a hypothetical. Um, and to that point, hypothetically, if you ask someone, what do we do instead? and they don't have an answer for you, you should stop listening to that person. Now that's not to say that you're gonna like my answer, uh, but at least I can say I have an answer for you, right? I always say that to people like, I have an answer to your question. You might not like my answer, but I definitely have an answer. Um, so I'm gonna start this week, and I'm gonna share also next week, but I'm gonna start this week by sharing with you the foundation of the book, and then next time I'll share with you details about kind of the, the, the bigger sort of body of the book, if you will. The first three chapters of the book 
really bring together the concepts of assessment, PLCs, and the three-tiered framework of RTI, MTSS, or PBIS, and they're really kind of the same essential framework. Rather than approaching this issue of accountability through the lens of thinking that this is just another thing to implement or another initiative, schools that operate as professional learning communities and schools that already implement a three-tiered approach to academic and behavioral support are at a distinct advantage. Now, the book opens with a chapter on assessment, because of course that's that's kind of the area that I focus on. And the basic premise in that chapter is that despite the separation of academic achievement and behavioral competence, we still need to assess those behavioral attributes. We need to get give feedback on those attributes and how students are developing them. We need to help students clearly see their continual growth with developing those characteristics and attributes. If they are as important as many claim they are, and I believe they are, um, so we need to assess them and create criteria and do all of that, uh, use our assessment literacy or assessment competence to help guide that that whole process. So again, whether we're talking about academic achievement or behavioral attributes, sound assessment practices and principles will still stand. That's chapter one. In chapter two, I make the case that if you're a school that's implementing specifically the PLC at work model, then you again are at, an, at a very distinct advantage over schools because you've got a process and a structure and a predictability around how you conduct business that really is conducive to helping you redefine student accountability. Remember, in the PLC at work model, schools are guided by four guiding questions. What do we want kids to learn, know, or be able to do? Question two, how will we know that they've learned it? Question three, what do we do for the students who haven't learned it? Question four, what do we do for the students who have already learned it? So why can't the answer to that first question, what do we want kids to learn, know, or be able to do? Why can't we also answer that question with the, the idea of responsibility? Right? So what do we want kids to learn and be able to do? We want them to be responsible. How will we know that they've become responsible? What will we do for the students who are still demonstrating a level of irresponsibility? And what do we do for the students who are already responsible? Right? So those four guiding questions can really help schools frame the work around redefining student accountability without adding something else to what they're doing. And then in chapter three, I make the case that schools that are already implementing a three-tiered approach, again, MTSS, RTI, PBIS, all follow the same three-tiered logic. Um, they're also at a distinct advantage, and this is not about an add-on. Um, because there are two fundamental premises that, that underpin a three-tiered framework. And the first is that the framework is inherently anticipatory. The very fact that tier two and tier three have been identified in the framework is an important reminder to schools that whatever you do school-wide or class-wide to address the issue of student responsibility and any other attributes, whatever you do class-wide or school-wide, it's not going to work for all of the students. If there was a magic formula for how we could get all of our students to simultaneously become responsible, then we wouldn't need tier two and tier three. If we had a magic formula for how all kids could learn simultaneously, we wouldn't need tier two and tier three. So the very nature of the framework suggests that whatever we try is not going to work for everyone. And truth be told, it's probably not going to work for the students you're thinking of when it comes to redefining student accountability, right? Now, that first important point is, again, that it's anticipatory. So knowing that when you're going into this work that you're going to try some things that are not going to work 100% of the time. Now, the other underpinning of the three-tiered framework is that the intensity of, and this is a byproduct, the intensity of any intervention much, must match the intensity of the presenting need. If the intensity of the intervention does not match the intensity of the presenting need, then the intervention is doomed to fail. 
So in that chapter, chapter three, I talk about the approach to teaching students responsibility through that three-tiered framework of that three-tiered lens. Now, those first three chapters are really meant to lay a foundation that ensures that schools implementing a PLC at work model, schools utilizing a three-tiered framework, and schools that are assessment literate or assessment competent can seamlessly approach the redefining of student accountability. I'm not saying it's easy, but but that would definitely make it easier uh, if those things are already in place. So next time, I'm, I'm going to talk more about the body of the, the book and the remaining four chapters of the book, uh, the seven in total. So I'll talk about the remaining four chapters of the book. And essentially, I'll outline specifically kind of how to get there. I'm, I'm, I'm really excited about this book, honestly, as you can probably tell, because it brings together a number of things that I've been passionate about for so many years of my career. And so I'm, my hope is that uh, it'll kind of pull some things together for everyone, make it make it see and make it clear, I should say, that that you, it's not about an add-on. It's about taking advantage of the structures and, and systems and, and predictability that you have in your schools. Super excited about the book. I hope that you educators, et cetera, will find the book thought-provoking. I hope you'll find it insightful, but I hope you also find it very practical. Okay, that's it for this week. Remember to follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok. Also, please email the podcast, tomshimmerpod at gmail.com if you've got questions for Assessment Corner or any suggestions or feedback for me about the podcast. And also a reminder to check the show notes for links for the upcoming professional learning events this spring. Next time, my guest will be Shanik Roy. Shanik is the founder of Yellowdig. Yellowdig is a community-driven, active, and experiential learning platform. So we're going to explore what that has to offer for our students and for, for teachers. Please subscribe, rate, review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts, but a rating and review on any platform will help grow the podcast's reach. And if you like what you hear, please keep spreading the word about the podcast to your friends, your colleagues, or on social media. I would really appreciate that. Have a great week, everyone.